Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Do you want to improve your audio situation, your listening situation, go to tweakedaudio.com right now and enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. When you do that, you get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is recorded in the depths of intense sleep deprivation. This is a book-related podcast. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm very tired. My son was born. He was born. And I'm going to tell you all about it in just a second. First, though, uh, I want to tell you that Bud Smith is my guest today. Bud Smith. His new novel, F-250, is available now from Piscataway House. Bud was here. He was in uh, my garage with me. We talked. And I'm going to share that conversation with you momentarily. So, uh, in the last episode... Episode 372, uh, I think it was Jim Gavin, I talked in the monologue about my wife uh, and uh, the bloody show. Do you guys remember that? Did you listen to that episode? Anyway, I recorded that episode, I believe, a week ago today. I'm recording this on Tuesday. The show goes up on Wednesday. So a week ago today, uh, I was recording. That would have been Tuesday, July 21st. Uh, That morning, I got an email from my wife. I talked about this on the show she was out shopping, running errands, and she's like, hey, don't want to alarm you. Uh, I just had what's called uh, the bloody show, which signifies the onset of labor, but it doesn't mean that it's happening imminently. It can, it can take weeks. could be several days. So I get that email. I then come in uh, to sit down to do the show. I talk about that. And I realize it's intimate details, but what, you know, this is what was this is what was going on. How could I avoid it? And the terminology I think is uh, amusing. Bloody show. 
So I, so let me try to uh, do this in a, in a relatively compressed manner. I, uh, I get that email or I get that text message. I respond. Is everything all right? Are we go? Is, is it happening? I'm a little uh, on edge. And Carrie, my wife is, uh, she's like, no, you know, it's, it's probably not. It's going to be a while. That's what the nurse said. She called the, you know, she called her doctor and the nurse was like, could be days, could be weeks, could be hours. No one knows. It's very common at the end of a pregnancy. So, uh, I had a meeting that afternoon on the West side of Los Angeles over, uh, near Malibu. And I was talking to Carrie and I was like, should I go? Should I go to this meeting this afternoon? I can cancel it. If you think, uh, it, you know, something's happening. I don't want to be, you know, all the way over on the West side. And then suddenly you're in labor. And she's like, no, 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 no. Go to your meeting. It's fine. So I go to my meeting, drive all the way over there. And, uh, I, you know, I conduct the meeting. And, uh, as the meeting is concluding, I go back to my car, I get in my car. I had driven not 500 yards and my phone rings and it's Carrie. And, uh, she's on the other, you know, on the other end of the line and I can hear people in the background, kind of a crowd noise, ambient noise. And she's like, uh, you know, hi, I can hear the alarm in her voice. She's like, hi, uh, I'm at the Grove. My water just broke. Did she say it was a gross rupture? I can't remember, <laughs> but she was with our daughter. She had picked our daughter up from school and, uh, they had gone over to, uh, the Grove, which like for those of you who don't live in Southern California, shopping malls in Southern California are outdoor affairs. Oftentimes. And the Grove is one such mall in Los Angeles. Anybody from Los Angeles will know the Grove. It's sort of an annoying place, but yet it's a place that, especially I think when you have kids, you wind up at a lot. It's very kid-friendly, and yet it's annoying. It's not cool to go there. It's very norm-core to go there, and I'm there all the time with my daughter. So I'm, you know, I'm on the other end of the phone, and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. You're in labor. And she's like, yeah. Uh, I'm at the Grove and, uh, you know, this is, uh, I'm wrapped in blankets. It was a gross rupture, <laughs> which uh, by the way, happened, uh, with our daughter as well. Like m most women, when their water breaks, uh, not to get too graphic for you here, but, uh, you know, they when their water breaks, it's like a trickle. And then you go into the hospital and maybe the doctor finishes breaking it. I don't know. But for whatever reason, when my wife's water breaks, it breaks. So what happened was, uh, Carrie and my daughter, Evan, they were, uh, they were at the mall. It was hot, sunny, and uh, it was after school. Carrie's 38 weeks pregnant. She's very large, pregnant, uncomfortable. And, uh, she's like, Hey, uh, Evan, do you want to go get a, do you want to get a soft pretzel? Let's get a pretzel at Wetzel's pretzels in the mall. And so Evan says, yeah, they, they go to the, you know, the pretzel store, they get a pretzel. And then it's, uh, and then it's like, where do you know, where do you want to eat this? Do you want to eat this over here on this bench? 
And uh, Evan's like, no, I want to go sit in the grass. At the Grove, at this mall, there is a uh, patch of grass, a small lawn, where, you know, people will often sit during, uh, there, there are like musical performances at this mall. They will, they will set up a stage on the weekends. Uh, a band will play hits from the 1980s or whatever, and then people, you know, families will unfurl uh, fleece blankets provided uh, in complimentary fashion by the Grove Shopping Mall. And, you'll, you know, families will, will sit on these blankets in the grass and uh, rock gently to the music. So there's my, uh, there's Carrie, there's Evan. They're sitting there in the uh, grass at the Grove eating a Wetzel's pretzel at about four in the afternoon. And uh, Carrie then uh, reported, she later reported feeling a uh, pain in her stomach. She felt some sort of pain or discomfort in her uh, belly. And she turned to uh, our daughter and she said, I think think mommy needs to get up. We need to walk. This is not comfortable for mommy to be sitting in the grass at the Grove. And so Evan was like, okay. And then you got to realize too, for those of you not familiar with pregnant women, or for those of uh, you out there who are female, who have not uh, ever been pregnant before, you know, at, at 38 weeks, when you're sitting on the grass, on the ground, when you go to get up, you, you know, it's a bit of an undertaking to rise to your feet. You don't just snap up. You don't just spring to your feet. So uh, Carrie, who is wearing a, uh, a full-length sundress and flip-flops, as many pregnant women do in the summer. She, uh, she has to sort of rock over onto all fours first before gently pushing herself to her feet, if that makes sense. And when she did this, uh, her water broke spectacularly. At the Grove. And it was so, again, I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to gross you out, (laughs) but it was so, uh, spectacular. She later told me that a, uh, nice gentleman, approximately, uh, 15, 20 yards away, saw it happen and came running over. There are a lot of people there. And suddenly... Uh, this nice gentleman is helping my wife to her feet. She is losing amniotic fluid in a uh, dramatic way in the lawn at the Grove. Are you okay? Can I help you? Suddenly, uh, people appear, and they are they are holding uh, the fleece blankets provided in complimentary fashion by the Grove Shopping Mall. They're wrapping them around my wife. My daughter is at mommy. Are you okay? Mommy, what's happening? You know, all of this. My Carrie's trying to juggle all of this. <laughs> Public attention, which she does not enjoy, especially in this context. And then our uh, four going on five-year-old daughter witnessing all this, trying to make sense of it. And meanwhile, I'm on, uh, I'm in Malibu driving home at near rush hour so I'm on the other end of the line okay I'm coming home I'll get there as fast as I can just get home are you okay can you get home 
So wrapped in fleece blankets, uh, Carrie and Evan are escorted uh, to uh, the car. Carrie actually drove herself home. And thank God uh, she actually valet parked at the mall. This is another thing that's going to sound absurd to people who don't live in Southern California. But she's 38 weeks pregnant. It's 10 bucks to do it. She did it. And thank goodness she did. Because otherwise she would have had to go up an escalator and, uh, you know, trek through the parking garage. It's just too much on a woman in the heat at that stage of a pregnancy. So she goes to valet wrapped in blankets. As she was leaving, she later told me, uh, people, onlookers, at the Grove broke out into uh, light applause. <laughs> as she left. Calling out like, things like, uh, you know, good luck. Congratulations. So she gets home. I'm on, I'm in the car. I'm stuck in traffic on the 10 freeway. It's like a parking lot. I'm feeling nervous. I'm uh, calling friends. I, you know, I need you to get over and help uh, Carrie. Can you, can you leave work? Can you please get over there? Calling my parents. People are coming up. You know, we're trying to organize everything. We're going to be in the hospital that night. And, uh, And it takes me about an hour to get home. In the meantime, Carrie had called her doctor, her OBGYN. He's, he's a very relaxed guy. You know, as uh, most uh, OBGYNs, I guess, have to be. When you're dealing with pregnant women and, you know, and their spouses, and it's nerve-wracking. Everybody's nervous. There's a lot of nerves involved in pregnancy. And so I think reflexively, this guy has developed a sense of humor and a kind of deflective temperament. And he's like, don't worry, just go, you know, get to the hospital around eight or nine tonight. Eight or nine tonight. After a gross rupture at the Grove shopping mall. So I get home uh, and, uh, you know, I'm dealing with stuff. I'm logistically trying to handle things, packing bags, getting ready to go to the hospital. And it's like, do, do we go now or do we really wait? And, it, you know, we determined that if, if you're going to wait it out, you might as well be at home, comfortable, rather than in the hospital where it's less comfortable, theoretically. So we don't wind up getting to the hospital until almost 9 o'clock that night. And we get, you know, we get there, we check in. Uh, Carrie is uh, put in bed, obviously. She's in a delivery room. We're sitting there. Uh, a nurse comes in. They're monitoring. They're checking the baby's heartbeat doing all the rest on the way into the hospital, Carrie, you know, quietly let me know that she hadn't felt the baby kick in a while. And he was a big kicker, especially late in the pregnancy. So of course I'm nervous, but the nurse checks the baby's heart rate, the heart rate registers. He's there. Uh, and then eventually, uh, like the head doctor, I don't I forget what the name was, the resident, something like that. The head doctor comes in, uh, looks at the charts, looks at the screens, and then kind of reaches up in there, and a look of alarm registers on her face. Unmistakable. And uh, to make a long story short, within 10 minutes, I was dressed in scrubs, 
and we were heading in for an emergency C-section. What had happened was that the baby was breech. This was Tuesday, July 21st. The previous Friday, which would have been, uh, I believe, the 17th, Carrie had gone in for you know her checkup, and the baby was head down. He had flipped. Maybe he flipped at the grove. But now uh, he was foot down, and not only that, his foot was almost out. And uh, the cord, the umbilical cord, was almost out too. If that goes through the cervix, if the cord goes through the cervix, it's very dangerous because uh, oxygen can get cut off. Bad things can happen to a baby. And and potentially the mother because they would have had to, uh, in that case, to take the baby out, I think they would have had to intubate, carry, and do a more intense procedure. But of course, you know, in the moment, not, not all of this is, is registering fully. I just know that we're moving quickly and that this baby's going to come out uh, fast. Less than 90 minutes after we arrive at the hospital. So we go in. Uh, I am, uh, as the uh, father of the child, they wheel carry into the emergency room. They are doing pre-op preparations, giving her an epidural or whatever. Because, you know, the woman during a C-section is awake, but she just can't feel herself from the uh, chest down or whatever. So they're getting her ready for that. I walk in, there's a chair next to her uh, head at her left shoulder where I am instructed to sit. I sit down, dressed in scrubs. I've got my camera. I'm looking at her belly. I can see everything. I'm starting to think to myself, uh, am I going to, there's no, there's no partition. I always thought there was a partition. Am I just going to watch all of this like happen? Not that I'm a hundred percent against it. I'm not totally squeamish, but you know, it's a major surgery. It's my wife. And there are about 10 people in the room. It's a lot of people present. And someone starts calling out a, a countdown. 20 seconds. Meanwhile, uh, our OBGYN arrived in the room. We had been receiving regular updates. Like he's nine minutes away. He's seven minutes away. He walks in, he's in scrubs, someone starts counting down the seconds. It's like the beginning of a, of a live television show or something. And at three, two uh, orderlies, what do you call them? Two young assistants uh, lift a partition right before my eyes. And uh, the surgery begins. I stand up, I look. I watch a good deal of it. Uh, I do start to feel a little lightheaded. A lot of organs, a lot of blood, a lot of digging. It's very rough. It's not gentle. Carrie can't feel anything. She's kind of lightly crying. She's a little nervous, but she's medicated enough. I think they have her on something to help with anxiety. I don't know what it was, but she was sort of just lying there. I'm trying to watch this, and then uh, suddenly uh, they lift him out. Took a little elbow, uh, elbow grease. I remember the doctor saying, there he is. And then they lifted him out. There was some gurgling. There wasn't the initial cry, which scared me. He lifted the baby. I took a picture. Baby was covered in uh, blood, as babies are when they come out. There he was. After, uh, after all this. You know, for anybody new to the show, this has been like a three and a half year process. Maybe four. I don't, I'd have to do the math. It's been a long process. My wife and I, uh, we lost five pregnancies on the way to this one. 
So in a way, uh, it feels like we've been pregnant for four years. Or, you know, like my wife, is, Carrie's been pregnant for four years. It feels like that's been the gestation. It's taken a long time. And then suddenly the doctor's standing there holding this kid. It was uh, unforgettable. And then they pass the baby off to other assistants who are testing his vitals. I hear the cry. I look at the doctor. Uh, I made eye contact. I said, is he okay? And he's like, yeah. He's fine. And then I'm standing over him. He's crying. They're kind of poking him and checking him and checking his reflexes. I cut the cord just as I did with my daughter. I'm looking down at him. I'm taking photos. And he was born an hour and uh, roughly an hour and 26 minutes after we got to the hospital. So it was great. And, uh, we worked hard for it. It felt very sweet to have him here. And they sewed uh, Carrie up. She, she's, uh, you know, the surgery went well. It doesn't always. But this time it did. We were lucky. And uh, then we were getting wheeled down to a recovery area. They were checking Carrie's vital signs. They were checking the baby. And then we went into our little room for the week. The ba- And by the way, the baby at this point had no name. As I have mentioned many times in this program, we struggled with the name for a long time. And it was down to traditional versus hippie. And uh, the first night, we didn't make any decisions. The second day in the afternoon, you know, with family members asking and wondering, what's the name? People, I finally was just like, okay, we got we to gotta decide. It's time. The child is here. We need to pick a name for him. So... Uh, we picked Jack River Carville Listy. And let me explain this. River was always the name. And that's what our son will be called. We call him River. Everyone's going to call him River. That's going to be the name. Uh, it's the name that our daughter Evan chose early in the pregnancy. And she sort of latched onto it and then it's stuck. And we really like it. But we're aware, you know, uh, I have traditional parents, Southern. We live in Los Angeles. We're aware that people uh, in, you know, of certain persuasions or uh, sensibilities will be like, oh, my God, that's so L.A. Oh, my God, that's a hippie name. We're aware of that. And, you know, I do feel a, se- a certain sense of responsibility in naming uh, a child, wanting to give a good name, wanting to give a name that uh, he or she can carry. But, you know, uh, so what we did was we, we decided Jack River Carville Listy. So Jack is a traditional first, just in case he needs it someday. We love that name. It's obviously very common. It's a classic name. It's been around forever. It's sort of timeless. And uh, the joke is like, if he ever wants to run for office and he needs Jack, he has it. But if he has anything uh, like my genes, he will, he will never be able to run for office, <laughs> nor will he want to. And then Carville is my mother's maiden name. And I wanted that in there because I'm, I'm close to her side of the family. And yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, Louisiana family. I'm second cousins. For those of you wondering if you're political, 
Uh, I'm second cousins with James Carville. I don't know him well, but it's that Carville family. He's my mother's cousin. So Jack River Carville and then River. And this is what I, you know, at some point I'm going to try to explain this to my parents. I haven't had the energy to do it, but to anybody who's wondering, uh, you know, how could you, you know, I, I feel like my parents might be like, River, are you sure? It means, uh, it means a lot, that name. And we put a lot of thought into it and we love it. And what I kept saying and, you know, what Carrie and I kept saying is that, uh, you know, you saw, I guess we, in the end, wanted to name the child with, with both head and heart in mind. You know, have a little humility, give him a traditional option just in case we are crazy. That's always a possibility. <laughs> we don't know everything. Give the kids some options. So there's the cerebral, uh, hyperanalytical part of me that prevailed. But the name River is the one dearest to us because uh, of our daughter and the fact that she picked it and because we think it's beautiful. Uh, and I think that, I mean, at the risk of sounding too precious, I think that a connection to the natural world is something we've lost, something I've lost. It's easy to lose it when you live in a city, especially, but it's super vital. And a name that pays, uh, some credence to that, I think is uh, awesome. And then, uh, you know, I guess at a deeper spiritual level, uh, you know, the five that we lost are somewhere in there with him. And, you know, again, I feel you, you just can, you can sound nothing but ridiculous talking about this stuff unless you're very, very good at it. But, uh, that's the, kind of the way I see life and death and birth and death. It's a continuum. It is a, a river. I hope that's not too corny. If my son is listening to this later in his life, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the point is that there's a lot, a lot of thought went into it and uh, a lot of heart. And we think it fits him. And I'm betting that he's going to wind up liking it. I think it's a cool name. So that's the name, Jack River Carville Listy. And... I guess the last thing I would say, just to kind of uh, sum up the experience, is that, uh, you know, obviously the birth itself is a, a high point, And it's something, you know, th those memories, both for my daughter and my son, very vivid in ways that a lot of memories uh, in my life just surely aren't. But I, I remember in a very vivid way the moment of uh, birth for both of my kids. And then I think uh, the real emotional high point came for me when, uh, Evan got to meet her brother when my daughter got to meet her baby brother and she came into the hospital and uh, saw him for the first time. That was cool. That sort of defies description. I like you can't put that into words, but that was very, very special. It's a great moment. And I kind of, I was, I kept saying it to myself. I kept saying it aloud. I think my mom, my mom was there and I think she was kind of like, okay, relax. <laughs> but I just kept, I, this is good. I kept saying, this is it. This is good. Don't forget this. It's a peak life experience. Goes fast. He's already a week old. Boom. It's just a week went away. It all happened. We're home. He's here. After all that. 
And I was talking to Carrie the other night and I was like, you know, it was late and uh, he had just gone down. Our daughter was asleep. And I was like, you know what's strange is that there's all this time trying to uh, create this life and have this baby. And uh, and then he's in, and then finally the pregnancy sticks and we know he's growing in there and we see some ultrasounds and, you know, you try to imagine, you know, who is he? What's he look like? What's he going to be like when he comes out? natural things that any parent thinks about when they're expecting a child. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, then, then there he is, he's out, he's here, he's alive, he's with us. And it's like, I've known him my whole life. He looks exactly like I knew he would look. I hope that doesn't sound too dramatic, but it's totally true. I'm also really sleep deprived. So if I'm rambling, I apologize, but I, I haven't slept really in a week. <laughs> so my emotions are probably, uh, running a little bit higher as I hope you can understand. That's truly how it felt. I looked down at him and I'm like, there he is. Of course. That's him. I knew he was trying to come out and here he is. Just had to work at it a little bit. So, uh, before we get on with the program, I want to say thank you. I got a lot of nice, I mean, I know that I've, uh, I know that I've, I've talked about this on this show. It's a, it's kind of a decision you make. Like, do you bring this stuff up? And, uh, I, I, you know, I brought it up. I shared, uh, what was happening with us a little bit. I tried not to overdo it. I know people can overdo it talking about kids. And I know people who aren't interested in kids, uh, or, you know, having kids themselves or people who don't yet have kids and have like, you know, not a lot of context for it. I don't want to annoy you. This is just the stuff of my life. And it's like, what's most important to me. And when you sit here in front of a microphone on a weekly basis or on a biweekly basis, it's hard to avoid it, especially when, uh, miscarriages are happening and suddenly you have to sit here and talk about stuff. So I, I talked about it a little bit. And, uh, you know, I kind of let you guys in on what was, you know, what was happening. And so with the birth of the child, uh, I feel an obligation to kind of share, you know, that stuff too. And uh, because I've been doing that and because, uh, you know, I, I sent out word on social media about, uh, River's birth, I got a lot of nice, uh, emails and tweets and good wishes. So I owe all of you guys, uh, who did that, uh, a big thank you. I appreciate that. We appreciate that. And not only that, um, I know people, you know, were, were texting and tweeting and emailing saying that they were, uh, thinking good thoughts for us and praying for us and stuff. When we went into the hospital for the birth, I believe in that stuff. I think it, uh, I really think it helps. So thanks as well for that. We really appreciate it. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Bud Smith. I had a great talk with Bud. He was over here uh, a while back. I did a reading with him here in Los Angeles with uh, he and uh, Ben Laurie, XTX, Mir Gonzalez. I think I have that right. But got to meet Bud in person. He came over. He sat down. Great guy. Uh, from uh, Jersey, who does this, who who makes books in a way that uh, cuts against the norm, refreshingly uh, cuts against the norm. Just a really good guy. Had a great talk. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, here he is, folks. This is Bud Smith. I'm from Bayville, New Jersey. Which is, is that is um, that New York City adjacent or is that? It's like an hour and a half south of New York City. Have you ever seen that show, Jersey Shore? Yeah. It's the town, like, the town right south of that. And uh, You grew up around those kinds of people? Like, is Jersey Shore a familiar world to well, you? Well, Jersey Shore was like all the tourists that come in. So they, like, they would come from, like, Staten Island or, or Long Island, and they'd come down to the Jersey Shore. So the people from the Jersey Shore are just, like, normal regular kind of people the people on the show are like uh i don't know worse than cartoon characters i think right yeah but uh yeah i grew up in a campground believe it or not uh in bayville and it was like what do you mean you grew up in a campground we rented a house in a campground and it was all like dirt roads and just hanging out with kids that came and rented out for the summer like they would come in rvs or something and uh the winter time the place was completely empty so it was just me and my little brother and we would and your parents my parents yeah <laughs> <laughs> and we would just screw around in the campground and and get into trouble uh basically in this empty campground how close to the shore were you we were maybe like a 10 minute drive okay. to the bay and okay. maybe 15 minutes to the beach okay so good but a good childhood yeah that sounds fun kind of it was great it was really cool and you know like I said, it's like kind of like a resort town, so people are always coming on vacation. So all kinds of different friends. And did, did you uh, did you have to like your parents had to like work the campground or keep maintain it in order to have the house, or was the house just there? Oh no, the house was like the people who built the campground like decided that they wanted to build a better house, so they whatever they moved and then they rented it out, you know, just to my parents randomly through a newspaper. Okay. My dad worked as a mechanic fixing cop cars, so like like exclusively cop cars. Yeah, he worked at the municipal garage. So he started out on garbage trucks. And, you know, so that's a good gig. That's a steady work. Though. Yeah. Except when you climb under a garbage truck and you start fixing it and, and hitting stuff with hammers, all the maggots like fall on you. Oh, God. So, yeah. So, he, you know, he eventually graduated up to working on cop cars, which was cool when we were little because no maggots in the cop cars, no maggots in the cop cars. <laughs> and he'd come home from lunch, like with the police cruiser and park it in the driveway. So we thought it was cool when we were little kids because we, you know, the neighbors always thought we were like in trouble with the police. And we thought that was really cool. And sometimes my dad will let us ride in the back of the cop car. Turn the siren on? Turn the siren on, lock us in the car. So it was cool. (laughs) So, yeah. And then what did your mom do? My mom, she worked at like a factory on like a factory line, um, like aerosol spray cans mostly and stuff like that. And I remember she used to bring home boxes of cassette tapes that we would disassemble. I don't know what they did with them, but we'd be like little child labor in the living room of the campground ripping apart cassettes. And she got like piecemeal 
somehow with these cassettes. I don't know. What do you mean she got piecemeal? Like for every cassette we ripped apart and disassembled, they would take them, I guess, and reuse them somehow. Like, they, like did you have to make sure that the parts were intact? You couldn't just shatter them. You had oh, to... no, no, no. You had to like take them apart a certain way so yeah. they weren't like all destroyed. Right. And then the company would like bleach off the labels and, and make them into something different. And reuse them. Yeah, it was very exciting. Okay. So uh, how did you get into books? Well, I mean, because it doesn't I mean like it's a it's yeah. not, it sounds like it's not like a like the what I usually hear on the show. Oh no! Uh, so living in the campground, like I said, the winter times were always like no one was around, and it's got to be sort of sad because in the summer everyone's around. Yeah, it was. It was really like it felt really isolated, even though you know it's not like we lived in a, de- a desolated area. We're like I know people, you know, Appalachia, or whatever. You don't have neighbors for a thousand miles, it seems. But like we we had a pretty populated area, but. We had no na- I had no neighbors. It was, it was all alone. So you go to I, school? I, yeah, I went to regular school. Okay. But, you know, after school's over, the kids weren't, like, coming to this empty campground and playing, <laughs> you know. And, I, you know, and after school, you have to come home and do your homework. So I'd be just pretty much alone. So I just really got more and more into reading and writing and drawing. And it just, like, snowballed over the years. And, Your parents encourage it? Oh, yeah. They yeah. always take me to the library. And I remember when, uh, when I finally got to the point where I could drive – I didn't have a license yet, but you could drive, you know, the cars all around. Uh, no matter what I wanted to do, where are you going to go? And I said, oh, I'm going to the library. So we wouldn't be going to the library. But, oh, you could always use the car to go to the library. And uh, they, they were thrilled to buy books, records, anything, anything art-related. Do they have, like, an artistic bent that they didn't maybe realize? or? I don't think so. Um, not really. My dad loves movies. Like, you, you know... We used to always go to the V, you know, the video store, just rent movies constantly. And my mom, she draws a little bit. She used to draw more. She's like really big into crafts. So it's like making stuff at the kitchen table, like gluing together Christmas trees and stuff. Uh, but uh, no, they're not so much artistic. They're but more sometimes just, it manifests in weird ways. Yeah. I mean, like that's, it sounds like they've got a little bit of it. A little it's gotta, bit, It's yeah. got to come from somewhere. Yeah, I think so. And, at the, and I think people who wind up encouraging that stuff in their children have... I mean, A, maybe they just love their children and they want to encourage whatever enthusiasms yeah. their kids are demonstrating. But I think it's there's usually a line you can trace. Oh, yeah. They were never like, don't play the guitar because that's stupid. <laughs> or that, you know, God doesn't like it. Yeah, God doesn't. It's the devil's, it's God the devil's instrument. The guitar. You know, well, does God like the bass? Does God like synth? What does God like? You know, the I'll si- do that. The sitar. Yeah, God likes sitar. Um, all right. So you're growing up there. Like what Jersey fascinates me as a as like a cultural entity. Yeah. Like very, is it Bruce Springsteen? Like is it all that stuff or is that kind of just a a caricature? No, I think it kind of is. I mean, so like Jersey Jersey in general, believe it or not, has like a lot of different ge- geographical things to it. Like there's the shore. There's actually tons and tons of like forests, like pine trees. Yeah, to no, it's to beautiful. Out west, southwest. The- if you if you get up to North Jersey, there's almost like almost like mountains in north the northern tips of New Jersey. And if you go out, if you go out to the west, there's actually like farms. So it's like bizarre if you drive an hour in any direction in New Jersey, you like hit all these different things. It's like you almost expect like, okay, where's the Jersey Desert? You know. Well, but it's like you, there's a the I think the popular conception of New Jersey is sort of like industrial waste. Yeah, like Bayonne, Bayonne, New Jersey is where that area is kind of where I do most of my work, my construction work, and it is. It's and that's like, your day job. Yeah, it's an industrial armpit, but it also has its own weird cultural kind of coolness too it's slimy cultural but 
I think like uh, maybe a lot of people think Jersey, they think of like Sopranos, and, and that's cool. And it is that in a way, but it's also a lot of different. Anytime the, geog- the geography kind of changes, the people kind of change. So New Jersey kind of seems like, like I said, you drive in like different directions, you meet different types of people. What was the, what was the, you said Bayville? Yeah, Bayville. What was, what, like, what are your, what is your tribe in New Jersey, the people you kind of grew up with and around? Like, how would you characterize them? Uh, they were mostly, um, like the kids I hung out with, everybody was like wanted to be in a band or or they were kind of like artistic in a little way um just typical kind of like kicking around just drinking out in the sand pits where we lived uh i don't know it's kind of strange it's like they're not city kids they're not country kids they're like they're just kids from the suburbs uh they don't have like which are almost interchangeable they're interchangeable yeah it's like they're here. They're here in California, suburbs of California. They're here anywhere you go. They're sub the kids from the suburbs. You know? I feel, but I feel like the sub. I mean, I've read a lot about this, but it seems like the suburbs um, are thinning out a little bit, or you know, people are moving towards urban centers. Yeah, more. I mean, me and my wife, we live in New York City now, and we've lived there for like nine years, and and we were just looking maybe to buy a house in the suburbs, move out of New York City, but like I don't know. And then we're also looking to buy something in Jersey City, like right across the river. So it's like, I heard the same thing. It's like people aren't moving to the suburbs. It's not like the dream anymore. Like that dream is right. kind of gone. Right. Uh, the dream is to own a place in New York City. <laughs> yeah. Be able to afford it. In New York City, you can't have a barbecue grill and a pool unless, you know, you're, uh, right. you know, rich as hell, which uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. But, uh, you know, without a college education and, uh, you know, rich parents, uh, a pool in New York City. Oh, man. No, dude. I mean, but I mean, you don't even, you, you would need. You need way more than even rich parents. You need like ultra rich parents. You need a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. It's like $20 million for that kind of setup in New York City just to buy the place. Yeah, I know. That's absurd. Yeah, so that's not happening. But we might move back down to where we're from, down by the ocean. It kind of seems like I'm 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 comfortable when I'm like kind of close to the ocean. Like right now here in Los Angeles – like today, I'm going to the ocean. I'm just like happy. I'm looking forward to that. I don't surf or anything. It just seems like you get in the water. I, yeah, I go swimming. Uh, you know, I just can't. I can't get enough. Be careful. If there's tar balls in the ocean right now. Oh, I'm into tar balls. I I, I work around you're like, tar you're like, balls dude, all I, day. You're like, dude, I swim in Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I swim in Jersey. <laughs> I swim at my work uh, at the oil refinery. I just jump in the oil tanks. You know, swim around. <laughs> so it's all good. Damn. Okay. So, uh, high school, you you wanted to be in a band. You're hanging around with all these kids in the suburban uh, yeah. Bayville who like you know want to do something. Yeah. Everybody in the suburbs kind of wants to do something, and everybody thinks seemed to think that they most of them wanted to like get out of there. So, yeah, a lot of most of my friends were in bands, and, and they thought that you know the dream is like all right, get the band together, and then you know somehow you know you're just gonna like click your you'll fing- be the next Bon Jovi. Yeah, anything like that. But it's like. I realized, like, back then, you have to kind of just really put it all on the line. You know, you got to, like, sell all your shit, like, hop in a van and just, like, tour the – just go everywhere and, like – but well, nobody see, nobody's really doing – nobody was really doing that where I was from. They well, weren't, like, doing not that. only that, but a lot of people don't want to. Yeah. Like, they want to be rock stars, but they don't want to – the work, they don't wanna work, the work it, yeah. to get there yeah. is hellish. Yeah. You're living in a van. Yeah, for years. Years. Yeah. And you, I mean, town to town. It's yeah. not like on some luxury tour. And even when you get to a bus, like – who wants to live on a bus? No, buses are worse. Yeah, it's, I mean, five people at least, you know, the, whoever, however, you know, however many people are in the band, but you're in a bus and shared space and shitty motels, and 
I, you know, that, that, uh, requires some endurance and a kind of, a special kind of wiring and you better like the guys you're with. Yeah. So I was always in bands with guys I really liked, but we just never really like did that whole thing with, you know, no one was committed enough to just like give up all everything they were doing. So, you know, you just, you bounce around and, uh, eventually, uh, I just wound up because the band thing didn't work out. I just, I thought, all right, well, if I do more writing stuff, if if I screw up and it doesn't go anywhere, I can only kind of like look back at myself and say, okay, well, I didn't promote it enough or I didn't try it enough. But if you're in a band, it's like, okay, like, so you play guitar in a band, right? And and you write like a song on the guitar and then you show it to the band members and everybody's like, okay, that's kind of cool, but I'm not really into that one thing. So it's like, it doesn't, it, millions of things fall flat with it. But if you're, if you're writing, it's almost like, well, it's only me here. Right. You know, an editor might reject the whole thing, but... It's only me, and if it, if it doesn't go anywhere, that's cool. But at least it was just me, kind of like saying, "Nah," you know. And 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 uh, as far back as high school, you were already thinking about literary stuff. Yeah, I was always screwing around, just writing in little notebooks and stuff. And I'd say it just kind of kind of caught on more and more the older I got, around like twenty one. Who were some of the writers that you you latched onto early? Well, definitely Kurt Vonnegut. Just all how everything. You read one of his books, and all of a sudden, it, it led into the characters like, "What? Oh, this guy's in this book too, or it's his like neighbor, or it's his cousin, or it's like his his whatever. His son's dead, and he's a ghost narrator in this one. That just blew my mind. I thought that was great. How everything kind of like linked together. It's like an way. ecosystem. Yeah, it was an ecosystem, and it felt he he wrote these like really moral moral cartoons almost, but uh, it was a moral cartoon full of. People that were all inter interrelated, and it just felt a lot bigger than and some of the other things I'd read. Yeah, uh, I, I latched onto him too. It's yeah. weird he has a big, he has a powerful effect. It seems on on young people. Yeah, definitely. So, and also like reading him was cool because I, I kind of figured I was like, oh, this guy doesn't seem like he has like any rules at all. He he wasn't like a hippie. He wasn't like Tom Robbins. He would just write like wacky. St- he would write wacky stuff, Kurvanek. But he also he didn't have like a. He was urbane. He, he was, didn't, yeah. He, he didn't. was urbane, but he was also like somehow like kind of uh, countercultural at the same yeah. time. Yeah, he just he didn't have this whole set of rules. So I really latched onto that and and I thought, wow, I mean, it's just like do whatever the hell you want and there's kind of no way to do it wrong. Yeah, like as long, you know, somehow it's got to cohere, but he he was drawing cartoons in his books and Yeah. you know, like like that, that stuff, especially with adolescent boys. You know, he would do dick jokes and fart humor yeah. and stuff like that and that, you know, I guess yeah. that's He's speaking our language at that. Oh age. yeah, speaking the language, and I just thought it was really cool being in like sixth grade, and I went into the sixth grade, well, the regular library for elementary school, and just like looking around at the books, and this big bright orange book, and I open it up, and there's like a cartoon of a butthole. I'm just like, <laughs> that's all you breakfast want. Breakfast of champions, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is cool. All right, I'll try this and whatever. So that was cool, and it di- it didn't hurt either that the high school, well, the elementary school librarian was. Really cool, and her favorite band was Rage Against the Machine, and she gave me a Rage Against the Machine uh, cassette tape. That's with, what you want from your with, librarian. Yeah, fucking bullet in the head. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you got to read this book. Okay. Anyone else? Uh, people I encourage reading. Well, my dad was always – he always had books around, but they were like, um, you know, spy novels and Clive Cussler, Searching for Treasure and stuff. And I loved I loved reading all that stuff, but it didn't really like I, I was never like I want to write a treasure hunting novel, yeah. Where I'm you know, where I'm gonna go to the bottom of the ocean in a in a submarine and search for gold, uh, or seduce women across the globe like these spy novels. But um, yeah, I don't know. Something clicked for me when it was more just about regular life. 
and then kind of regular life in these books and then watching like Seinfeld kind of clicked for me with like, wow, these like this, this really great art that comes out of just like the everyday nothingness, you know? Um, well, that can be, I mean, that can be really, uh, freeing once you realize you don't have to be living some grand adventure of a life. Yeah. I mean, cause most of us, I mean, nearly all of us are having, what is it? The very boring existences. Very boring existences. <laughs> and I got to say like when, when all of a sudden MySpace and everybody was really popular for everyone to have a blog, I wasn't, um, you know, the idea, just like you click around on people's blogs and you're like, oh, Jesus, this guy's writing a blog about like uh, a fucking toothache and it's re- it leads into something really good and it's it doesn't have a point or it doesn't have this grand, it's not this grand essay about anything and that was just seemed very adventurous to me and the idea, the whole, the whole idea of that, you didn't really have to have a big giant thing to write about, so... That's give you, cool. Give you some confidence. Yeah. To get I mean, started. How can you fuck something like that up? You know, if you if you're just going to write about nothing that matters, and you hope it doesn't even matter if it leads to anything else. And- well, it can be paralyzing. I think like it's the whole universality issue, where like you know, you you like universality in art happens when somebody gets really personal. Yeah. And the personal, you know, often might seem on the surface mundane, but if the writer's good and they drill down into it and they get to the depths and find the interesting parts of it then all of a sudden people can relate. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's really great, you know, you re- any anytime you kind of somebody really relates to me, it's when they're not kind of pretending to be cool, you know. They're not trying to be this like really great cool person. They're just they're fucked up in some way or they're afraid of something and 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 they're just kind of trying to get through it. Or they're just messing around and they don't really care if it just completely falls apart. It's just punk rock. They don't care if it's all screwed up. Do you feel like there's a, a like a that punk rock informs the way you write, like the ethos of that? Yeah, I'm I'm not like the biggest encyclopedia guy of like awesome punk bands or anything, but just that whole like idea, of like something, just not throwing so much caution into the wind with making something, just making something. Like like recently. <clears throat> um, I was thinking about like doing readings. Like I do a lot of readings in New York City where I'll just go to an open mic or somebody I know is reading and I'll go and then, you know, you get up there and I think a lot of people get up there and, and they'll read something, but they get tired of reading something from their book. So they read something new. So what they do, they print it out on like a piece of paper and they'll bring it with them. Or they read it or if they're really smart, they'll bring their iPad or something and they read off their iPad. But like I would do that sometimes, and then so, every once in a while, you know, there'd be somebody who'd be like, "Oh, that that one thing you read was funny or whatever. What's that from?" And I'd be like, "Oh, well, yeah, it's not anything. I just printed it out on a piece of paper, and now it's, you know, maybe it's be in a book that comes out four years from now." But recently, I was like, "Well, fuck that." So I just started making like little zines, these little uh, punk rock little shitty zines, you know, and. Like, so, like copying them at Kinko's? Yeah, copying them at Kinko's. And when somebody asks me, like, oh, what's that thing from? Well, I got my set of shit I read in my backpack. I'll give it. I'll give you one. So here's a, here it is, you know. It cost me 50 cents to make it. You can have it. Like, it doesn't mean anything to me to make money off of this stuff. Or it's not like that. It's just, just make something. Make something. Right. Like, don't worry about, you know, what's what, what's your who's your publisher going to be? Who cares? Like. It's a big deal, you know. And these days, I mean, it's uh, it's less and less of a big deal. I mean, it seems. Yeah, it's like, what's your end goal with stuff? I I hope your end goal is just to make cool shit all the time. Like every day, if you can make something cool, or that's nice. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's just my luxury because, you know, I I manage somehow to get like a, 
a decent day gig and I'm not like pulling my hair out with, with that stuff. But, but you know, it's just, it's nicer to make things and, and to continue being productive. Like every day we're screwing around with something. So let's get, let's, let's go back on time a little bit. Um, you grew up on this campground. You have one sibling, you said? You have a brother? Yeah, my little brother, Will Smith. Okay, Will Smith. Yeah, Will Smith. Yeah. <laughs> and he's great because um, he's a redhead, redheaded guy. And uh, after Will Smith, the Will Smith, started becoming like famous, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, my brother is still Will Smith. You know, He's not <laughs> Willie or Bill or Billy or right, anything. He's, right. just, he's just Will Smith. He, don't, he doesn't care. It's a Fresh Prince you know, of Bayville. I'd be Billy Smith or something. My brother's cooler than that. He's just, nah. I'm What's just he up Will to? Smith. He is. He actually works as a mechanic at the municipal garage where my dad works. And my brother's cool, man. He's had like all these great jobs. Like he's he's worked at like junkyards. He's driven forklifts. Uh, he's been a mechanic at a few different places. He's been a garbage man. Um, I don't know. Like you're talking about Bruce Springsteen songs. Like my brother's kind of like he's like that. He's just like an everyday kind of guy who's just all these different jobs and just. Salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. Doing cool stuff. And you, it sounds like you come from a, a line of people who, who know you know how to do shit. Like I'm, oh, yeah. I can't fix anything. You can fix anything. I can't fix too much stuff, but um, you know, when, so I started out doing construction stuff with like stones. So I, I can't really fix too much stuff. Even though your dad was a mechanic or is a no, mechanic. No, I, I didn't. I never really like. See, like he was a mechanic, but he loved cars. So his love of cars made him over the years a better and better and better mechanic. But I didn't have that like deep down like love of like I got to have this car. Or, yeah, like, I don't have that either. Or get this crashed up car, rip the whole thing apart and rebuild it so yeah, it's better and, I don't have and that. do all that stuff. So I didn't have any of that. So what I had was like just, you know, I started, I started getting better just by working construction at, at fixing crap. But it's not like I have like rudimentary carpentry skills i'm i can weld okay i cut with torches and arc gouge and stuff but i started out with it it was like i I had a pickup truck i bought a pickup truck and i would just load it with boulders and i would drive around um i would get a job and drive to the house and like build like waterfalls on the edges of people's swimming pools and uh just like you don't need any tools for that you don't need to know how to do it you just stack some stones uh cement them together (laughs) big but i mean big stones yeah big stones and every once in a while, I'd you know I'd have enough money to hire somebody to help me, but it was mostly just me. And you can't. It's like one of those things. It's another like building something out of stone. You can't really fuck it up unless you're building a wall that has to support uh, something you're building on top of it. If you're just building like a like a big like a waterfall or a, or a wall around the outside, a decorative wall. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have the first idea how to do that. Uh, yeah, you, you could do it. Man. I mean, I'm sure I guess I could figure, I mean, yeah. if I, someone taught me, but you didn't, you didn't, no one taught you. Oh no, nobody taught me. Really. You just went, and where'd you get these boulders? There's a quarry, um, maybe like 15 minutes from where I live. You buy them or you just go get them. You, you go there and you stand there on the edge of this giant pile of like mountain boulder things and you point at the ones you want and this guy drives a giant forklift machine and he just punches through the pile knocks things over and then gets the one you want and puts it in a truck and you do that until the thing is sagging low and then you just drive over there and, and stack them on the back Boom. of the truck back of the truck yeah all right how long did you do that for i did that for like maybe seven years that was right after like you got out of high school and you didn't go to college i didn't go to college no i i, I thought about it i thought because i love to write and i love to read so, like, the idea was, like, oh, you know, maybe I could become a writer one day with that. But it seemed weird because 
I wanted to write novels and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. Did they teach that in college? I don't know. If, I didn't didn't click in my head that you could go there and someone could teach you how to do that. Um, you might be right. I, I still don't know. Um, I don't think. I think. I mean, it's an open question. I think. It can yeah. work, I think it can work either way. But I think if somebody yeah. ultimately gets to the point where they're writing books, you have to teach yourself. You have to be at least the primary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure like it would have been beneficial to me to go, but I thought about it and I was like, well, I don't have any money to pay for this. And if I take out a loan, I'm going to take out a loan to pay back something. I don't know if I'm going to be successful at. So it didn't seem like a, as good an idea as filling my truck, my truck up with stone and, uh, dropping it off at rich people's houses and getting them to pay me, uh, to build something in their backyard. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was cool for a while. And then my, um, I met my wife and she, where'd you guys meet? Uh, we met in like the town where I'm from, but through a kind of kind of a weird coincidence with uh, friends who like <clears throat> introduced us, but through the internet. So it was just a, a weird thing. I, I met a I met a girl through the internet who happened to be from the town where I was from, and I met her out for like a drink, and we instantly like knew we we're like, all right, so this is kind of it was kind of like a, almost like a date, but we sat down and we were like, yeah, this isn't going to work at all. But the girl was like, but you would really like my friend. So she introduced me. She to, knew right away. Yeah. So she introduced me to my my wife now. And uh, yeah, it's been cool. But uh, through the years, you know. And the, was it instant? Did you instantly know what you Oh, yeah. That was. Yeah. So when, once I started hanging out with my wife, we knew that we were going to wind up together for a long time. And uh, after living in Jersey for a little while together, she really wanted to move to the city. So I moved to the city. And um I took this construction job because you can't build waterfalls in uh, New York City. <laughs> so I'm doing just I've a few apartments that. have waterfalls. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. So now I'm like the only guy, um, c- c- I think, commuting out of New York City, Manhattan, in my car, driving out of New York City into New Jersey to go work. How long does that commute take you? It's like half an hour. Okay. That's it's not, not bad. bad but yeah. everybody's commuting from Jersey into New York. So the traffic's crazy going the other way. And I'm like the only person on the highway. You're sailing. Like, yeah, I'm sailing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm driving with my knee. I'm on Twitter. I'm like writing a short story on my way to work on my phone. It's like there's no one on the road. You, you can't, you know, you, you'd have to hit the lottery to get in a car crash on, on the way to work. So do knock whatever. on wood. Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood. So, okay. So what do you do? You, your construction. Yeah. So I'm a Boilermaker. What does that mean? It means that like, so Boilermakers is a metal trades union. And what we do is we build power plants, oil refineries, and we work at nuclear power plants. So we just like weld basically together huge – like your garage right now, it's like a two-car garage. This is like the size of usually something we work on, like a drum. And they'll open it up. They'll drain it out, clean it out, and then they'll open it up and they'll inspect it and they'll say, all right, well, this section of the wall needs to cut out, be cut out, and we'll go and repair it by welding in a whole new sections of walls and just ripping apart machinery with big cranes and – Torching stuff apart and reading blueprints and just building big things with metal. Just get them burnt a lot. And you get burnt a lot? Is when you're learning how to weld, yeah. You just get... Hands? Arms? Hands. Arms all scarred up. My feet, I have... I have your feet, I mean, the molten metal falls down into your boots and burns holes in your feet. It's horrible. But... um you know, that's, I, I don't know. It's a union job. It's a union job. Is that, what does that mean? Like to the bottom line? Oh, all you, right. So what it means is it's like um, back in the day, like a bunch of people just got together who were who knew the trade and decided that they were going to negotiate for their wages. 
Right. So, but I mean, like, does that get you get you a better wage? Gets you better benefits to be in this union as opposed to just being like a freelance boilermaker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you have a, you have a hole that sends you out for jobs. So you'll work for a while and then get laid off. Then work for a while and get laid off. But it's cool because um, you generally know you're going to work this amount in a year. So you can kind of pretty much figure your year out. Like most of the guys I work with get the whole summers off. So they'll just do whatever they want. They'll, they'll, they'll have like their own business and they work on the side in the summer. And they know like it's busy in the fall. You work all year round? I work all year round. Just It work just shook out that way. But most of the guys in my union, there's like 500 of us in New Jersey. They don't work all year. So they'll have like, the, like I said, they'll have like the summers off. So it's like being a teacher except you are get burnt a lot <laughs> i guess <laughs> molten metal in yeah the mol- molten metal yeah yeah we'll see i think it's a good i mean but it, and you have benefits and all the rest yeah you got benefits and stuff uh you know retirement and stuff like that but it's like any anybody else who like is thinking about their retirement drives me crazy because by the time you retire you're gonna be fucking dead so it's like so when, when someone's like i can't wait to retire i'm like <laughs> Why don't you just get a job you don't want to retire from or like right. continue to search for something you would want to do with your fucking life? Why are you excited about being like 65 years old and hardly being able to walk anymore or like deaf, being it's deaf kinda, and yeah, stuff? Yeah, it's, it's kind of fool's gold. Yeah. What do you – like what's so – I don't see what's going to be so great about being like retired. So what are you looking for? Like, like you, you obviously love to write. Yeah. I and, just – And do you have any – do you have any hope of somehow making a living from it? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think that kind of thing is possible with, unless, unless somehow I like started, um, like working on screenplays somehow or something. And there was still somebody else kind of footing like a, like a something going on other than just me being like, I'm going to write a novel about, uh, you know, this dude, this guy who rides a motorcycle around America I don't know. It just doesn't seem like like being a novelist or especially a poet or writing short stories. I don't think you can really. Doesn't seem realistic to me. I like. I love having. But you just like to do it. Oh God, I love it. I love having like a manual labor job that's not like a dummy job. You have to use your brain, and I'm just surrounded by guys that are like super interesting, funny as hell, and all we do all day is joke around. So it's like hanging out with your friends all the time, right? Just chilling with your friends at work. And I got like a rotating group of people I work with. There's, like I said, there's 500 of us, but I'll be like a rotating maybe 150 that I work with every year. So they come through and you work with this guy for six weeks and then he's gone. And then all of a sudden, you know, you come into work one day like, oh, look who's here, you know. And the stories are always, always just so great when you run into people. You get material. Material, yeah. When, When do you, when do you write? I write at work sometimes on my cell phone mostly. I had a novel that just came out called F-250, and I actually wrote it on my cell phone at work, just like in spare. Sometimes we wait for permits, and we'll have to wait, like, be in the truck for 20 minutes waiting for the permit while the operators walk the unit down. And I'll just write on my phone with my thumbs, and then when I get a chance later, I'll edit it and uh, write on my lunch breaks sometimes. Or at the end of the day, like, people will all be fighting to get out of the parking lot, so I'll sit in my in my trailer for, like, an extra... 15, 20 minutes and just write, you know? And you have the whole the whole book is on your phone. Yeah, the whole book was on the phone. Okay, so do you have to reread to get continuity? Like, how do you have the thing structured, and how do you pick up where you left off? And Well, so FT50 was a little weird because I actually, um, I don't know, I kind of, I, I figured I was going to write it on my phone, so I outlined it all. And what I did was I made an index card for every 1,200 words. So I figured, okay, I'm going to write 1,200 words a day, okay? And... 
so I'd have an index card and I would take a photo of it on my phone uh, so I could just scroll through my pictures and I see chapter one. Okay. So these are the bullet points, like of the six things that are going to happen in this 1200 words. And half the time I wouldn't stick to it anyway, but you have that like picture. So every day I could like, okay, so I'm done with this one. And then I'll take the actual index card and I'll like put a mark on it. So I have a stack of them and I know, okay, so I'm done with the first draft of the first card and I'll go through all like 45 cards or whatever. And by the time I was done with the whole thing, now I know, okay, so the book's done, whatever. Now I'll make it into a Microsoft Word file or I use Apple, so it's a pages file. And now I take it from my phone, I just I send it and I dump it all into a, a Word file and I just start to fix all the goofy things that happen when you type with your thumbs. Right. Edit it. And then by the time that, that whole as I edit each chapter, now I make another, I made another mark on that index card. So I got like a now red mark instead of a blue one. And I do the whole thing like that. And then when I was done, I printed the whole thing out on CreateSpace for uh, $3. They mail you a paperback, edit it again. And then when that was done, send it out, and hopefully somebody was going to publish it. So. And it happened. Yeah, it happened with that one. So it was cool. But it was... Uh... And what happens if it doesn't happen? Has that happened to you before where you, you send it out and it's oh, a yeah. no-go? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've... I probably have about seven novels now, and um, yeah, of course it happens. You know, you send something out, and I've had I had a, I had a book that was a finalist in a, a comp, like a competition thing, and and it was at a it was at a really great indie press, and it was cool. I was like, oh wow! So it got to like the which the, indie the press? Fin- it was a uh, civil coping mechanisms. Yeah. So it got like right there, you know, it got right there, and then the book got um, it got to, went to another place and. A personal email from from the from the next person like okay we we're right there with publishing it but it's just not going to happen so that happens you just kind of keep going with it you don't care I don't care yeah I'm just writing something new but I think what happens is with me anyway like when when a project doesn't like get fulfilled or it doesn't like it doesn't have success it doesn't have like it didn't hit um and just let it sit for a while. Let it sit for a while. Write, write something new. But you don't have any of the neuroses of most writers that I talk to. Uh, I don't. It doesn't seem. You don't seem like you're a neurotic person. I'm not because I don't really take this shit as seriously as some people do. I just love to do it. I mean, I believe me, when I'm writing a book, I want it to be really good and I want it to come out good. But I'm just not really like – I'm not worried so much about it's not, not looking like an idiot. Is it, is it your identity? Do you call yourself a writer primarily? Or sure, you- yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do, but I'm just not really worried about looking like an idiot with this stuff because I think it kind of goes back to like if you just really do what you are going to do consistently over a long period of time, eventually I think you're going to get success with it if you're just making yourself happy. That's some hippie bullshit right there, but I don't know. It sounds good to me. I'm all, good to I love me. the hippie bullshit. Yeah. Um I I don't get I don't get too neurotic with with making And what about the culture? Cuz like the culture of writers, you know, it's like a lot of kids uh, of privilege, MFAs, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, like you are anomalous, I think, in the world of literary fiction in terms of uh, your background and how you approach things and your day job. Um, it's not the ordinary thing uh, that I hear anyway. Like, do you ever, does that ever bother you or do you? No, it doesn't. I tell you because, I mean, I mean, I live in New York City, which is privileged enough anyway just to live there. That's and, what I'm saying. Like, And the, like afford it, you know. So I, I feel kind of like sometimes I feel... A little bit like, oh, I, you know, I feel kind of really lucky to be able to afford to live here. I don't live in, like, the nicest apartment or anything, but just to live there, it's, like, expensive. I mean, I don't have a shitty car. I, You know, I work hard. I have, a, like, a car that can I can drive places. It's right. Like, some writers I know, they, like, have fucking nothing. Right. So, I mean, I, f- I don't feel 
if I, if I look at the people who are better off than me, who are who are in the literary community, where they might come from money or or they or they have MFA uh, certificates, I'm kind of like cool with that because I think everybody just comes at everything they do from a different angle. I mean, it's none of my business. No, but a more a, yeah. a more neurotic human being yeah. would fixate on that. It's just none of my business how anyone lives their life or how they make their art or where they get their money from. Like, I'm more interested in in the things people are making, and I don't care who's making it. Like, if you know some of the most interesting artists that I've ever ran into are just the lady that stocks like cat food at Target. You never would know, but you go to her house and she paints beautiful murals or something. You've seen that? Oh no, I. Wish. Oh okay. It's <laughs> like damn. Who is this but target like, lady? No, this target. Oh, you got you to meet this target lady. <laughs> I want to buy some of that shit. Yeah. She's going to be famous one day. But, I mean, if, if you know, anyway, if like these like regular people, artists, if they all had chips on their shoulder, I think they'd just concentrate on that and they wouldn't make their stuff. Right. Like, fuck all that. Make your stuff. Make your stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, like when you were a younger kid, um, did you ever get in any trouble? Nah, no, not really. You weren't a troublemaker. I wasn't a troublemaker. Was your, um, your parents were pretty cool? Yeah, my parents were cool. We could do whatever we want. I mean, we weren't like, you know, if if we if we even if we were like smoking weed in the house or whatever, I'm sure it wouldn't even have been a problem. They were just cool. They your parents remember. smoke pot? They didn't. Uh, by well, by the time we were like old enough to realize that they were smoking pot, they weren't anymore because uh, they just they didn't drink or smoke weed, but they were just so chill. Like they didn't give a shit about. The things I think some parents fixate on a little more, but they had two boys too. Like, how much trouble could we really totally? Quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. You think Come so, on, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, two boys. Oh, one boy to like to read. Yeah. Uh, so, how much trouble am I going to get? And I'm, I'm reading. You're going to the library. I'm going to the library. And my and Will Smith. Uh, he he wasn't. <laughs> he never trouble, man. I never even got. I don't even think he's ever been arrested. Which you know. You've been arrested. Yeah, I was arrested once, but it was nothing too crazy. My friend, um, so um, he lived at the end of this dead-end street, and it was great. We used to party at this house. And one night, we were having a big party at his house, but he wasn't there because uh, he went to a wedding. But the wedding was right up the block. Did he know you were there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was cool. He was in the band. And uh, so he got really drunk at the at the wedding and went to pull out of the fire hall where the wedding was at and drove head-on into a parked van and, like, Completely fucked his van up, screwed his car all up. So when he backed out, pieces of his car ripped off and were in the street. So when he drove back to the party, um, he's bleeding from his head and, and just like <laughs> basically crawling on the floor to go puke in the toilet. Um, you know, the party broke up, but he was my really good friend. So, you know, the, our, the really best friends of his, we all got together and drove up the block and collected all the pieces of his car that were ripped off. And threw him in the, like the trunk, and like drove and and uh, and hit him so he didn't get in trouble for hitting his parked car. But then the following day, uh, we all felt bad, so I went to the house of the guy with the van uh, to give him an envelope full of money from my friend. And uh, yeah, whatever. So the police followed me to where I lived, and then they they arrested me for interfering with an investigation. It was like no big deal. Um, yeah, dude, that's like a heroic act. Uh, well, yeah, it was, even even in your arrest, you're a noble figure, bud. Oh, thank you. Come on. Thank you. You're the money guy. The money guy. The guy with the envelope full of money. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you yeah. went over there to like... It wasn't my money, though. Yeah. It's always the cover-up, though. That The cover-up gets you in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. If he hadn't had a heart of gold, uh, my friend, uh, he but he did get out of the DWI. 
Um, so I guess the more of the lesson is if you ever get in a DWI accident, just flee the scene for 24 hours, okay? Everybody, tell all your friends. <laughs> That's how you do it. Well, no, and then it's also like I've heard you don't take the breathalyzer. I think you lose your license automatically. It can buy you some time. I mean, you know. Yeah. You hear things from people who have like relatives who are cops, and they have like a whole yeah, yeah, yeah. you know protocol yeah. of how to. I, people with their their relatives are cops. They're they're probably okay anyway. So yeah, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. You get arrested for like you're covered in blood. Like what you do? Yeah. Oh, but you're related to this guy. Okay, so no problem. So uh, mafia stuff. You have any exposure to that? Is no, that I I didn't. I mean, not um, even up in uh, what is it? Uh, no, I ha- Bayonne. I, I haven't in Bayonne. No. Um, I kind of I kind of feel like maybe I should have for something by now, but I haven't. I haven't had any mafia exposure. It's all it's, it's been surprisingly innocent up there in northern Jersey. You're a religious guy? Construction. No, I'm not religious, but I'm I'm not against it. I'm not like a close You raised religion? Uh, no. No. No, I never I had never been in a church until I had to go to like a wedding when I was like 30 uh at, in a church. Because most of the people I knew back home didn't get married in churches anyway. And they got married at the fire hall. They got married at the fire hall. They got married at the, you know, in the uh, picnic area behind the VFW hall or at the beach or something. So finally going to my first, I think it was actually a Greek, a Greek wedding. So uh, the, the whole thing was in, in Greek. Okay. So I'm in this church. It looks nice. I'm looking all around at the gold <laughs> stuff. And this is cool. That was you the know. first time you've been in a church? Yeah, that was pretty much it. And uh, I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I think after that, maybe a year later, I went to a Catholic wedding. And that was a little cooler because it was in English. Yeah. And uh, they kind of talked a little bit about um, some stuff you're supposed to do with your life. So that was cool because I'm always into that, hearing people's uh, ideas about what I'm supposed to do in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause what are you supposed <laughs> to do with your life? <laughs> I guess you're supposed to live a good life. Uh, you're not supposed to screw anybody over too bad. But if you do screw them over, I think you're supposed to uh, try to make it up to them in a, a more meaningful way. Bring them an envelope full of money. Bring them an envelope full of money. So uh, it kind of just reconfirmed the stuff that uh, I think you know from common sense anyway by going to a church just by See, I think this is I'm, – I'm building a theory of Bud Smith. I think this lack of neurosis uh, or neuroses is, is maybe at least partially due uh, – like first of all, I would say your parents did a good job. Yeah. Secondly, no religion. No religion. You're yeah. not worried about some sort of uh, overhead projector looking down on you. No, no, I'm not. And my wife was raised Catholic, so so she's a mess. She is very guilty. <laughs> very. She, when I first met her, she was just so guilty about everything, and and oh, through the years now, for for the ten years, like if I made a, like a a graph of the amount of sorries she said, it starts off like all the way uh, peaked through the roof with sorries. And I've just coached her through the years to just stop apologizing. For what? Just little things? Everything. Yeah, everything. that's just Catholic. I think that's the Catholic thing just to be like very guilty and sorry about everything. I'm kind of that. I was raised Catholic. Yeah. I got that. Yeah. I'm working through it. So she's really, really gotten more and more chill the farther she's gotten away from, uh, I guess, just the original aspects of the sorry chart she's getting the bud smith vibe (laughs) yeah it's drawing her away yeah i don't know that's a good thing maybe it's nice to be sorry i don't know you guys have kids we don't we don't have any kids you're gonna do that um i'm i don't know what we're gonna do um we might we might we're like i think the window's still open pretty good we're not like getting too old yet right we're like you're gonna be like old mom or dad and you can't do anything with your kids uh i'm really excited because my uh how old are you i'm 33 oh yeah you're young yeah, got time to have kids. I'm getting ready to have a kid. I'm almost 40. 
Yeah. Am I an old dad? No, no. No, old dad is like 60. Yeah. Old dad is like 60. And like you, you know, you're in a wheelchair and the kid is in a <laughs> stroller. <laughs> right. And you got to get the electric wheelchair in order to push the stroller. You can't like have the, the ones, you know, the manual wheelchair. Or but, else. I, but I will say that like maybe if you have a kid later in life like that, I've thought about this, you know, what, it would, what would it be like to be 60 or something like that and have a, suddenly have an infant? Uh, yeah, maybe it would give you some sort of renewed vigor. You'd have, at least you'd have to have the incentive to keep you know take care of yourself. Yeah, I think that having children probably keeps you just really. Act- it keeps you active, and if you're active, you're happy. If you're happy, then you, you know you can live probably a million years. If you just stay happy. Um, talk to me and talk to me in twenty years and see. How <laughs> <I'm doing. laughs> I'll talk to you when you're like a month in with a newborn. You haven't slept. You know, be like, oh my god. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is so easy for you know for the guy the guy with the union job who lives in New York City to you know preach about happiness. Like <laughs> you know everybody working at gas stations right now who's fucking writing my name on the wall, pissing on it. You know, <laughs> I don't blame him, man. But I think uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just from that that weird mindset that. If you just keep kind of searching around, eventually you'll kind of find something that's better than the last thing. And you just keep doing it until you find something that you're comfortable enough to get a beer gut from. Uh, and then <laughs> That's it. <laughs> what yeah. about uh, drugs? Do you do any drugs? I don't do drugs because I can't because uh, I have to take drug tests all the time, like randomly at work. Do you stay in the union? Yeah, yeah, just to work construction, you know. What, what about when you were – I guess you've been doing this for a long time. But when you were younger, did you ever have like a good intense drug Oh, period? yeah. Yeah, oh, awesome. Awesome time on drugs. Uh, doing just um, acid, mushrooms, stuff like that. Nothing too crazy. We never got into doing anything too nuts. Like, we, it wasn't like a Coke house or nothing. We were too right. broke anyway. Yeah. And heroin wasn't popular. Uh, heroin wasn't popular where I'm where I'm from until now. Now in New Jersey, where I'm from, everyone's on heroin. The opiate, the pills. But it's, the, it's the prescription heroin. It's like the prescription opiates are really bad, it's right? It's actually real heroin now. Okay. Uh, real heroin, where I'm from in, uh, like, Tom's River area is huge. It's fucked up. It's fucked up because everybody got hooked on pills. Yeah. And then real heroin's cheaper than the pills. Yep. So, you know, so that's what they're doing. So I never got wrangled into any of that. But um, Thank God. Yeah, thank God. So, like, you know, my drug experience was just every six months or so, just tripping out real good or, or whatever. Um, and it's I had, I had no horrible experiences with it. Never had a bad trip or, like, no. rock, rocking in a corner. No, I did. See, this is it. You don't have your Bud Smith is not going to have a bad trip. <laughs> no, I haven't because I don't know. It was just weird. It was always a really good time. Um, I don't know what. Hanging I mean. out with your bandmates or whatever. How yeah. long did the band last? The band lasted for different bands, different bands. Uh, you know, through the years. Uh, but I, when did you stop playing music? What age did were you kind of done with that? I think I stopped when my friend died. Um, what happened? He overdosed, so he didn't have a good time on drugs. Oh shit. Um, How old were you then? Uh, I was like 24, about. And what, what, what did he overdose on? Uh, well, I don't, I don't really know like the specifics of what he was really doing, but um, you know, he he was doing a lot of pills and stuff, and uh, died in his sleep I have at, a, at a I young lo- age. I lost you know? a buddy like that. So it's one of those things where. You know, you don't really, really know if the person overdosed or whatever, but I don't know. How many people do you know who are just dying in their sleep at 24? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just really sad. I read about it in the news sometimes where, like, they'll say sleep apnea. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I hear somebody, like, it's always a survivor who's, like, in shock and is like, yeah, I think yeah. it was sleep apnea. And I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> the music thing was cool, but it just kind of, like, it really took the wind out of my sails with, with to keep going with trying to do that. So, I had a weird coincidence happen with... um we played uh we played our last show it wasn't supposed to be our last show we played this this concert at this 
dive bar where I'm from uh, called uh, the Brighton Bar. And I was loaded. I helped him load his drums in his truck, uh, actually his Nissan, and he drove off. And I had my pickup truck um, at the time. So I put all my stuff in the back of my pickup truck, and I came back in the bar to use the bathroom. And there was the toilet was full of these things. They look like religious tracks, like paper. Just they're like the zine things I was talking about earlier. This um, this place called the Idiom. Uh, they, just, they were just copying, photocopying like poetry things, and and just bring them to bars. So somebody was taking them and it being really funny and just throwing them in the toilet. So I, I went to the bartender. I told her about the toilet, and she explained what what the poetry magazine thing was, and she gave me one. And I looked at it, and I was like. I wasn't submitting my work anywhere or anything at the time, and I was like, "Oh wow!" So this this thing is so great. It came out of the toilet. I'm gonna send them some writing. So <laughs> I sent them. I sent them uh, my, that night. My friend passed away. The funeral, all that stuff, and then music was over for me. So I wound up submitting uh, a couple poems to this place that had nothing to do with uh, my friend's death or anything. And unbeknownst to me, there was some kind of contest they were throwing. So they mailed me seventy five dollars. So I was like, wow, this is cool. I'm just going to keep sending poems out and getting paid big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is how this works. Yeah, so that was my whole plan with that. But um, the guys that ran that magazine, um, they, they also have this like punk rock kind of uh, uh, publishing house thing that they run in New Jersey where I'm from. So I met them through that, and through the years, they've put out two of my novels uh, that way. What's the name of their outfit? They're called the Scataway House. Okay. They put out F two fifty. They put out F two fifty and the book before that called Tollbooth. So they're just very, uh, they're very cool, uh, and they look at literature from a kind of a different angle. They're, um, you know, they're just from where I'm from. They're not really uh, swept away in the whole, um, I think, literary scene with, like, they don't go to AWP and have like a table, and they're not going to the the launch party for uh, this great place that you know they're just normal guys i guess well you know I, but i think there's something to be said for regional like yeah. writers who embrace their regionality if that's the right word for it you know yeah. like writers that give you a distinct sense of place writers that cut against what can sometimes feel like a kind of uniformity i mean i know there's arguments both ways on that but um you think about mfa culture and how it can sometimes in, you know uh, instigate like a mimicry you know people kind of adopting the same style or you know, I don't know. There's a lot of different voices that come out of MFA programs. Sure, but yeah, yeah. I feel like writers who, um, yeah, I think of Scott McClanahan, who's yeah, been on this so. show. He's a, yeah, he's a guy who like uh, seems unique to me. I'm, yeah, gl- I'm exactly. glad. I'm glad for him, and I'm glad for his work because he's writing um, of a place and from a perspective that uh, just seems refreshingly different than yeah. most of what I read. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. Um, Scott McClanahan is one of my favorite writers. Uh, like hands down, um, I, I just and I got into reading him like two years ago, and I just it was in such a slump of reading like stuff. You know, you read like the first three or four pages of a book and be like, ah, oh, I don't know, I this don't isn't going to work. I don't know if this is going to work. And then I, I stumbled upon uh, Hill William, and like from page one, I was just like, oh man, I you know, I'm reading it driving to work. You know, that's horrible. I'm like driving <laughs> on the turnpike, reading reading this book, like. Then at work, you know. So that's a be, good blurb, by the way. Oh, I read this while driving. That's how good it is. That's how, <laughs> that's sometimes that happens. The book is so good, and you're like, you know, driving to work, reading this thing. I'm not going to, you know, like in a 
I get pulled over by a cop, I'm going to say, well, here, read this book first. <laughs> go in your squad car, read three pages, and if you don't like it, then you can give me a ticket. But I guarantee you're going to love this book, and you're going to thank me for introducing you to it. You know, Is reading while driving illegal? I don't, is that written in the law? It's got to be. Okay. Oh, man, it's got to be. So you write uh, pretty autobiographically? I, you know, I don't mean to. I think F-250 is the only real autobiographical thing I've... The thing you read, read. La- like last night we were at a reading together at, yeah. over at Stories and you mm-hmm. were reading about uh, crash uh, the guy's crashing his truck into yeah. a woman. That's not you. Is that No, based- it is me. Um, most F-250 is things that loosely happen to me and it just kind of grew out of actually the guys I work with, um, how you hang out with guys or, or girls or you're at a party and you just kind of develop your stories you always tell. Yeah. Like like last night when we did our reading, I don't know, you probably – maybe it didn't seem like so much like I was reading from a book. I'm more just telling you my stories about the thing that happened because that's what happens when you just keep telling these stories from your life. No, and you get them. You get them down. You know how to deliver. You get them down. Yeah, yeah you get them down. And um, – <clears throat> So that was F two fifty. F two fifty is just something. But that's that, that particular me. scenario. You hit a woman. Oh yeah. She invited you to her house. Yes. yes. So you, like you tell people. I want. I want. This is a good story. <laughs> so uh, where I'm from, there's this little downtown area, and it's like at the coffee shop and and this bar and that bar, and there's this really steep hill in the town, and uh, Water Street and Tom's River. And I had we were talking about my truck earlier that I would load with boulders. And when I was really doing this job back in the day, I had the truck full of boulders. It was really weighed down, and it was raining. And as I pulled onto the steep hill, you could see the traffic light at the end of the hill. And there was a car. This was before cell phones. That someone's just screwing around on their phone. At a, now you see it all the time at a green light. Someone just screwing around on their phone, but she's just sitting there, not moving. Now I'm at the top of the hill, and I'm like, you know, 25 yards away, and I'm already like, all right. Come on, keep go, pull, yeah. <laughs> you know, make your right hand turn. And she's not moving, so I'm stepping on the brakes, and my truck is just sliding down this hill. All so, that weight in the back. Oh too. man, all the way in the back. So I pummeled into this this woman. I drove her into the intersection. My wheelbarrow flying out of my truck. Stones raining, little pebbles raining down on my the hood of my car, my truck, and uh, <clears throat> went into this little lot. By the way, it's dangerous, I bet, to have a bolt. Boulder could have flown through the back windshield. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky you're, you're not from where I'm from. Chances are I would have killed you. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so we, I, I, we go into this little parking lot off to the side, and the woman's really cool. She's so chill. And she's just like, all right, let's not handle this through insurance. Uh, she, her brother-in-law had a body shop or something. She's like, just give me the give me some money to get the truck, the car fixed, and we'll call it even. So no problem. So she gave me an address to go and, and meet up at her house and, and – just give her some money. So when I got to the house, um, she answered the door and invited me in, but it was like a big family dinner. It was like <laughs> – it was just like child's birthday. So there's balloons everywhere and just like a packed house full of people. And she's like, have a seat at the table. Sit down. <laughs> so like grab a seat at the table and all the people are like, oh, how do you know Kathy or whatever? And I'm like, I – crashed into Kathy <laughs> at a green light. <laughs> like, what's in that envelope? Oh, it's full of money. You know, <laughs> I guess it's like a reoccurring theme with me, just giving people envelopes full yeah, of money. No, hey, it, maybe I am in the mafia. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I imagine that, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, the heavy set Irish kid that's, you know, in and the And you mafia. ate dinner with him? Yeah, we had a little bit to eat and uh, gave her the money and was on my way. That was it? That was it. Um, okay. Well, she, she had all her, I mean, she was just a nice lady. She was just so nice. She was so nice. That's how you want to hit. Yeah. Oh man, I, I've hit plenty of. So I got in like three accidents with this truck, and obviously not everybody was as nice when you crash. Into you still it. have it? No. 
Okay. No, I sold that truck uh, when I was moving to the city because I figured. What are you driving now? I got a little car. I zip around in. Okay. Um, just you know, it's a four cylinder car, so I can't screw anybody up too bad. All right. <laughs> but are you a good driver? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're a good driver. You're reading at the wheel. I'm not the best driver, <laughs> but I, I haven't been in an accident that I've caused in a long time, uh, except. Uh, so I wrote this other book called Tollbooth. Yeah, yeah. No, knock on knock on wood. Right. So I wrote this other book called Tollbooth about this guy who works in a toll booth. You know, spoiler alert. And uh, it's from the first person of him working in a toll booth and just the drudgery of that job. You ever work in a toll booth? I have not worked in a toll booth. Okay. Um, so the book opens up with this horrible car crash right in front of the toll booth. That's the opening two pages of the book, right? So last year I was driving home from the oil refinery where I work, and I'm trying to get to New York City. And um, <clears throat> on the turnpike, there's a sign. It says, George Washington Bridge to the right, Lincoln Tunnel to the left. There's some variation on it, left or right. So I'm headed towards the George Washington Bridge. Well, there's a tractor trailer in the lane next to me, right in front of this toll plaza. I'm, or maybe like 100 yards up to the toll plaza. I'm in the easy pass lane. There's a tractor trailer on my right. There's a woman in like a silver Prius on the other side of the tractor trailer. She's looking at the toll booth and... She doesn't want to go to New York. She cannot go to New York. So she does a U-turn at about 40 miles an hour in front of the tractor trailer, right in front of me. I T-bone her right in the middle. Big-ass accident. We're all spun out. You know, our airbags didn't go off. Nobody was hurt, but thank God our airbags didn't go off. You have a passenger? Off. No passenger. So You're wearing a seatbelt? I'm wearing a seatbelt. And uh, now I'm just, I'm just all shaken up. I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm parked. And uh, the cops are taking, like, forever to uh, to come and uh, just, like, respond to this accident. I'm calling them. I'm like, you know, there was this accident. You should come out. And it's, like, it's going on, like, 40 minutes now. So finally um, the woman walks over to my car, and she's she's really cool, too. She's like, I'm so sorry. I couldn't go to New York. And I was like, I get it. And you just, was, there, was there traffic headed the other way? Like, she could have made it? There, in- there was, like, cones. Instead of a divider, okay. so she could have cut through the cones and, and whatever did her U turn. Fuck, that's still a bad decision. Like find a U. Oh find yeah, a proper no, U-turn. it was a horrible decision. So anyway, um, she was really upset and crying. I said, "Well, don't cry. It's just a car. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, my car. I got full insurance. I got full coverage. I was like, my car's screwed up. I was like, you got insurance, right? She's like, yeah. So she sat in my car. We listened to the radio for a while, and when the cop came, the cop came. He was screaming at her for for what she did. And I was like yelling at the cop, and it was really fun to yell at a cop. If you ever get it, if you're not in the wrong, and you get to scream at a cop, and you know nothing's gonna happen to you, it's like the best thing. You can just go off on the, went off on this cop. I was like, what the fuck? Why are you yelling at this old lady? She crashed into me. How I old was she? How old was she? I don't know. She's maybe like seventy or so. Okay. So she was. She was still cool to drive, and she made a bad decision in front of a toll booth. Cry me a river. Right. You know. So anyway, <laughs> cops don't need to be yelling at people, especially. Those yeah, and you already got a gun, man. So what are you yelling at somebody for? Right, right, right. Uh, so what are you working on now? You got any other things? In the, I mean, are you, you doing this book tour? You're pushing this thing for a little bit, and then yeah. you got another book in the works on yeah. your phone. Well, yep, yeah. I'm I'm always writing something new. Uh, in August, I got a split book coming out with um, Brian Allen Ellis, and it's called Table Without Chairs. And uh, his half is is hilarious. We just saw Mira Gonzalez read a bunch of tweets, selected tweets last night. Yeah, that was great. And Brian's got a whole part in this book that's like tweets that are like kind of like writing advice, okay. like anti kind of like uh, you know, it's like anti writing advice kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. 
And then my half is like um, little stories about living in New York City and just ridiculous crap that's happened to me. Like so that's what? Cr- like um, you got to see a lot of shit when you live in New yeah, York. Yeah, you really do. You see, you see a lot of stuff. Give me an example. Uh, well, recently I was walking. Uh, so I leave for work at like five a.m., um, which I, I like. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. everybody. Hears that and they like feel bad for me or something. I'm like <laughs> I choose. To, to work right. where I work and right. I, you know like right. don't like it. They, you tell me you work you go to work at 5am it's like you get a punch in the stomach for you like oh <laughs> so sorry you know it's like uh, I was just talking to um, what time you get up 4.30 well I get up at 5 but I, I leave I leave for work at like 5.36 you know I try to write before I leave for work it doesn't work out but recently I was walking to work and I live by the George Washington Bridge it's really nice to walk by that bridge and there's this woman running down the street screaming they robbed me. My friends robbed me. And she was um, um, a self-admitted prostitute because uh, I was talking to her. I was like, well, who robbed you? And she's like, pretty much, my pimp. I'm like, what? Like, where am I? What year is this? Like, 1974. Yeah, You're in a like, time warp. There's a guy like opening the window and he's like, do you want me to call the police? And she's like, no, it won't do any good. Uh. It's like, so I just see stupid shit. Every once in a blue moon, something crazy like that. But uh, you become normalized normalized to it i remember when my wife first started working in the city and she worked by Times square she'd come home and just have these fucking crazy stories like you didn't really see that you're full of shit <laughs> you know so. something about living in the city yeah, but it's, it's, it's city. but it's good in, in, a, in a weird way i think it's good like you can't escape a lot of hard realities and i think sometimes that's a good thing yeah um but yeah you get you get immune to it in a way it kind of just dissolves in the background but recently we had a really crazy weekend where there was like four things that happened in one day um, where we were just decided to go drinking on day drinking on a Saturday and we were uh, we were on 75th Street and I like I don't know I'm always like I don't like like I said I don't feel bad about myself living in the city but in the city sometimes you're just surrounded by like rich ass people like walking like dogs that are worth more than your car and stuff <laughs> and you're like oh man that that's an awesome dog you know <laughs> so we're standing there and there's this woman in a green dress like like model esque long blonde hair and she's with her like you know polo shirt uh, husband I assume husband and they're standing on the corner and I just remember kind of feeling like a little bit jealous because I just had like legit had candy bars for lunch at the uh <laughs> at the, not because i'm broke because that was like my lunch at the dive bar we were at they had free candy bars so i'm like God, i just had candy bar lunch look at these people they're like on their way to like you know they're gonna go swim around with oysters or, oh my god there's yeah, yeah. champagne take take a bath in champagne but then the woman um and i feel bad this made me so happy but the woman started to get all wobbly and she collapsed in the middle of the intersection but she didn't get like uh hit by a car or anything the light was changed and she cut her legs up and she was bleeding and the husband um he was crouched down and like slapping her face like baby baby wake up and the dogs were like licking the woman's face and me and my wife were to stand there like holy shit so my wife's really kind you know so she runs over i guess she's kind she her immediate reaction is to pick up the woman's expensive ass purse you know so she's holding it and i'm just standing there looking at the, this couple and we helped the help the woman up and um was just, she fainted no she was on like major drugs uh major like he was too like once she got up close and and you know his, you saw him. his expensive sunglasses fell off i'm like man these people are like <laughs> really <laughs> fucked up and i was like let's look around i was like man me and my wife are the most sober people on 78th street right now so we expensive went expensive dog yeah. expensive drugs 
So we went, we sat on the park bench, like a couple blocks up, not meaning, we were just sitting down. And, and they, these two, the couple came walking up, and the woman's legs were bleeding really bad now. And um, we were just like sportscasters. I was like, I think she's on heroin. My wife's like, maybe. Uh, do people do morphine still? And we're like kind of oh guessing. God. She's got all this blood coming down from her legs. And she hiked up her skirt and didn't have on any underwear. So she was just walking down the street naked, then passed us and bare-assed, like, bleeding, and turned the corner. And we were like... Just because she didn't want to get blood on her dress? Yeah. I was like, man, sometimes living in the city is pretty awesome, <laughs> you know? And then later on that night, uh, we got off the train, and my wife has, like, a particular path she walks home every day. It, you know, everybody's like that with their car. Yeah. But living in the city, now you have these, like, your walking path. Sure, yeah. You know? So she gets off the subway, immediately always crosses... Broadway, and then makes a left down 168th Street, walks up, you know, so she has her route, whatever. She calls it her hamster track. And we were pretty drunk at this point, the end of the night. And um, we go to go to turn the corner like we're going to walk down 168th. But I can, I, I don't know, I can see down the block that there's a guy standing there, like, no, no shit, true story, with his fucking pants down, his just dick hanging out, like, just standing there, like, not like taking a piss or anything, just like fully exposed. How far away is he? He's maybe like a block and a half up up the. You up can see his dick from a block and a half away. He, yeah, I got great vision. So he's got a big dick. <laughs> so I said, I said to my wife, I was like, let's cross the street, you know. Right. And she doesn't see this guy yet, and she's like, No, I always walk down this street because on the other side of the street, you know, there was a homeless there's a homeless shelter. It's a little sketchy late at night, and I was like, Let's cross the street, you know. So and then she sees the guy with his dick out. We crossed the street, went home, and had a nice night after that. I got to say though, a guy with his dick out, he's more vulnerable than you are. Yeah, exactly. Get a dick out. Yeah, yeah. When like, he tries to pull anything. You, I don't uh, know. Yeah, I might just drop kick him in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he maybe he he might not even had shoes on yeah. either. You know. Right. Step on his feet. That happens in the city. I saw. I was driving over to uh, Venice Beach not long ago, and uh, I was going to meet a friend for something or other, and just driving down Venice Boulevard, and I pull up to a red light, and I look to my right, and there, there's a homeless guy just completely naked. Yeah, yeah. Just standing there. Yeah. Like near a bus stop. Just, <laughs> He's just getting ready to take the bus. Just, com- I mean, calm as could be, but just completely naked as the day he was born. He was probably the relief bus driver. So the other <laughs> bus driver would pull up, take his uniform off, yeah. give it to the relief bus driver, who you thought was homeless, and then they would just switch like that. You never know. And just go on his way, uh, naked home. Yeah. Uh, they just share this uniform, all the workers. It was strange. There's something stranger because you know everything was proceeding. As, there was no one approaching him. It was, everything was just proceeding normally. Traffic just happened to be a naked man. Yeah. And I guess the world can't grind to a halt just, just for one naked man. Um, I think that's a good lesson. Yeah, and yeah. a good place to, it's a good place for us to end the world can't grind to a halt for one <laughs> naked man you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen Bud Smith this just in Bud thanks for coming over man thanks for having me man it's been great talking to you fun time alright guys there you go that's Bud Smith his novel is called F250 available now from Piscataway House you can find Bud online at BudSmithWrites.com BudSmithWrites.com. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Bud underscore Smith. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app, the official app of this podcast. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. Get the app. Download it to your device. It's the best way to listen to the program. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the podcast will be waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50, free. And then if you want to get access to the full archives, if you want to stream every single episode, including conversations 
with uh, writers like Cheryl Strayed and Roxanne Gay, Susan Orlean, George Saunders, Jonathan Leatham, Tom Parada, Edwidge Dantica, Tao Lin. Who else? Oh, there's a lot. Almost 400 episodes. Get the app. Sign up for premium within the app. Uh, premium is very cheap. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. Please do that. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's at OtherPPL. If you want to email me, the address is letters at OtherPPL.com. Letters at OtherPPL.com. Tell me what you think. So, uh, if you know, I'm a little uh, fatigued, naturally. I forgot how little sleep you get here in the early going. It's been a few years since I did it, and somehow uh, I forgot. I think you block it out. I think it's so traumatic, you somehow block it out. I'm relearning quickly. He's very cute. Little babies. Something about a newborn. It's very magical. I don't use that word a lot, but it really is. They smell good. Like, how the hell did this happen? But it did. It happened. Please remember that Henry Miller died of cardiovascular failure and that Anthony Trollope wrote seven pages a day, seven days a week. That is it for now. I'm going to go take a nap, maybe. I don't know. It's either that or I'm going to go for a walk and drink caffeine. Uh, But thank you guys for everything once again. Uh, All the good wishes. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Bud Smith. Go get his novel. Come on. Go get Bud Smith's book, F-250. And uh, I will be back soon, I think. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit iffy these days with the baby. I got to see how how things unfold. But I'm going to plan on uh, delivering episodes as as close to uh, normally as possible, at least once a week. The Sunday shows uh, are when I can get to them, basically. That's the, that's where I'm at right now. So uh, bear with me. Stay tuned. Follow the show on Facebook or Twitter to keep up with uh, all the latest. I just knocked the microphone. I'm exhausted. <laughs>